You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. I'm Linda Sharkey, and thanks for joining us again on Future Proof Workplace. Morag is in London uh, at the moment, and I just got back from Dubai. Um, but we are—we uh, have a great guest today, and I was fortunate enough to be in London myself uh, late last year and uh, at the Thinkers 50 uh, conference, which honored Tom Peters, whom we had on our show just recently, uh, as a distinguished uh, fellow for the organization. And it was just a great event. I was proud to be there, proud to be part of it. And I ran into some really wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, One of them is Alyssa Cohn. And, uh, you know, she is uh, just a really well-known executive coach. Um, If you haven't logged into her website, you should do that. She has two parts to her practice. She works with startup CEOs to help them scale their business, and she works with executives at Fortune 50 companies where she focuses on executive presence. I love that, Alyssa. We have to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Power, influence, and charisma. Uh, Corporate politics, well, there's another good one, and decision-making. We'll explore a few of these topics today. And, uh, you know, for women, I'm especially interested in exploring the executive presence uh, issue. Alyssa, you also uh, became part of the initial Marshall Goldsmith 100 coaches, and that's pretty prestigious. I'm, I'm really thrilled for you. And Marshall just recently actually um, included me in that group. I'm, I'm quite uh, humbled. Oh, Linda, I didn't know that. Welcome to the squad. And welcome to the squad. So that's I'm, wonderful I'm, news. Yeah, I'm very excited. But um, so that's actually my first question for you. Very selfishly, I'd like to know, you know, what what's it like? Um, what what's your experience with it? I, I went to a day and a half a day session in New York City. Um, called the best of Marshall Goldsmith, which was, you know, Marshall was just, just great anyway. But so what's it been like? Oh, amazing. Um, first of all, thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Uh, and it was great to meet you in London. And the Marshall Goals with 100 Coaches has really been so such an extraordinary experience. Like you said, Marshall's great. I've known Marshall for a long time. He's been a fantastic mentor. I've coached side by side with him. Wow. So I've learned a lot from him over the years. And this program, as you know, is his legacy project. Right. So he decided uh, at a workshop, given one of our other um, compadres, Aisha Bersell, that he was going to adopt 100 coaches and teach them everything he knows for free, and mm-hmm. that our only mandate was to pay it forward, as he says, when, he, when we get to be as old as him. Um, so it's very much a legacy project and a pay it forward project. And um, I guess what it is, is just like Marshall, brilliant and spontaneous and rich, rich, rich with content and super experiential and experimental. Um, And so what he does is he brings us together uh, periodically, you might say quarterly, but I don't, I'm not sure if it's even that structured. And 
he brings in a lot of the, his friends and clients and others to give different kinds of workshops and learning experiences. Alan Mulally, the former CEO of Ford, has yeah. given us a workshop on how he turned around Ford Motor. Um, mm-hmm. One of our folks, um, Gary Ridge, who is the CEO of WD40, talked oh. about how do you create an environment where people love to come to work. Um, Aisha Bursell did her workshop, her Designing Your Life workshop. So, And, and also, I should say, we um, were fortunate enough to spend the weekend with Dr. Jim Kim at the World Bank uh, oh, just last yeah. December. So it's really very rich with learning, but also with community. In the sense that we all come together, we all, you know, have this affiliation with Marshall. We're all here for the same reason, which is to learn, to give back, to experience, to improve ourselves and make a difference to those around us. And so there's a lot of just community building and bonding and good feeling. We all, you know, kind of love each other. Yeah, I think that's great. I noticed that Chris Cuomo was in there. Oh, that didn't again. I didn't know that too. You know, Marshall. Uh, I was in the sort of the second cohort, and and now he's been adding people. And so, I think the challenge is going. We, you know, those of us in the first and second cohort have spent a lot of time together by now, and yeah. the challenge is going to be to get to know the new folks that's all to know together, and then to stay connected as the group kind of expands. Yeah, I, I know that he's known Chris. He and Chris Cuomo have known each other for a long time. You know, I didn't know that. I actually worked for Chris uh, Cuomo's father. Oh, um, you're kidding. Oh, no, a long time ago in New York. And um, actually, that is how I met Marshall. Um, something like, wow, he was part of uh, Goldsmith, Kilty, and Boone. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're the ones that originally did the 360 uh, feedback. Oh, and, no, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And so that was kind of an original thing with him. And um, he was working consulting at American Express and New York State um, connected with New uh, American Express and uh-huh. uh, connected with Marshall around oh. this stuff. So it was really this way before he even got into the coaching practice, which was <laughs> really very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So Alyssa, uh, Alyssa tell me. You know, your focus is really on, you know, these areas of how do you deal with executive presence? You know, I'll I'll tell you why that fascinates me, because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I coach a lot as well. Mm -hmm. Um, An issue that constantly comes up for women, and I'm wondering what your experience is with this, is the whole notion of executive presence. And it seems to come up in my Experience. I don't have any hard data on this. I just I have um, just you know experiential requests um, that people, women, need to exhibit executive presence more. How, what's what's your experience with that? Well, I think to get promoted, to advance in your career, to get promoted, ultimately to be an executive, everyone needs to exhibit executive presence. The issue is that women sometimes are more diffident and um, women are often rewarded for following the rules, being a good soldier, keeping their heads down and doing their work. And so they both are oriented to that and also they're sort of rewarded for that. Men are more rewarded on their ability to sort of color outside the lines and be bold and be more risk takers. So 
they're practicing that and getting rewarded for that all the time. It's no, no surprise that they would then be able to rise through the ranks and look like a leader, right? Executive presence is really about, can I see you being the leader? So women have to really shift their style at times, certainly as they, as they get become more senior, to be able to exhibit this experience of she's the one in charge, I could see her as an executive. I can imagine her commanding the room. Yeah. Um, how do you do? Do you find that that this is more of a female issue than a male issue? And I know you said in the beginning that you know people have to. It's trans. You know, both men and women. But do you see it more frequently around women? Um, so yes and no. I work. Uh, I certainly work with a lot of startups, and I also work with just technology companies like IBM, like Microsoft. So I work with a lot of technologists, and I would say technologists exhibit these, and a lot of men, and they exhibit the same behavior. My work should speak for itself. Um, I don't like presenting. I don't like politics. Sort of this discomfort with again this notion of co- commanding a room. So. Mm-hmm. I think it's any kind of, I, I, I guess I want to sort of say marginalized group, like some group in a certain way, which mm-hmm. has these certain traits. But for women, it, it is, um, I guess I would just say, I think it shows up more obviously for women because there are just also fewer in the executive ranks. And so yep. then we look and we see what's missing there. Well, what's missing in part is a woman's ability to recognize that she needs to shift her style to become less of a good girl and more of the person in charge. Yeah. And there yeah. are techniques to be able to do that, to be able to improve your executive presence. That's the good news is that yeah. these can be taught. Yeah. Well, hey, would you be willing to give us a couple of your tips? And <laughs> here we listen close. Here we go. <laughs> right. So, if you think about, it, so executive presence starts with an inner state of a sort of feeding your own confidence, recognizing that you deserve to be in the room. So, you may not. Many people have to fake it till you make it. That's actually a normal thing to do. You don't have to have full confidence. You can actually be insecure or nervous, but you have to have a bit of a talking to yourself to recognize that what's required here is to show up in a certain way. So practicing having the inner confidence in low stakes situations, just sort of recognizing on a day-to-day basis in the office and in your work environment that you should be reminding yourself and practicing exhibiting that helps you when the stakes are high. Yeah. And what you feel on the inside, even as you're practicing feeling on the inside, does show up on the outside. So executive presence has to do with the ability to command the room, to communicate effectively, and that's both speaking and also listening to read the room to see what's needed here. And then finally, it's also about your appearance. We can't, you know, we can't pretend that's not true. You have to look the part, whatever that means to you. Yeah. And whatever that means for your environment. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, because appearance may mean something different for you personally, and the environment may require a different type of uh, appearance. That's absolutely true. So you kind of have to adjust to that. Hundred so I think those are I think those are fabulous tips, and it leads me to my next question of influence and charisma. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I, it's funny. I just had a discussion um, today with somebody who said, like, you know, my uh, he's the um, CTO, and he said, you know, my boss thinks I'm 
I'm turning people off. And, you know, I just think that they're not, you know, sort of they're not doing it right or they're, they're asking for unreasonable things. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's where the art of influence has to come in. How do you get your agenda done and how do you work with the stakeholders around you as given not the ideal set of stakeholders that you wish you had around you, not 100% rational people, not people who do good decision-making, not people who understand your space, but the actual stakeholders in your organization. If you want to get things done and rise through the ranks, you have to bring them along. And that's what you need to do. To, developing your influence skills will help you do that. Mm-hmm. And how do you develop your influence skills? Um, and it's a, for just a, just to first of all accept that influence is a process, not an event. And so it starts as – Yeah, because people think like, oh, I want to try to sell this one idea. Well, if you haven't laid the table for the past year yeah. or sometimes five years, then yeah. this big moment that you're hoping is going to happen is going to be very disappointing. Yeah. So in other words, it's a continuous kind of effort on your part to build relationships and work with and and sort of influence others. Is that what I hear you saying? Totally true. It's to build relationships. It's also to make sure that your relationships are throughout the organization that you're working in or externally also at times. It's to develop reputation for being reliable, being consistent. It's to give other favors, both because they'll appreciate you more and also because ultimately when we do someone a favor, they feel they owe you a favor. Yeah. And that is influential. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and you know what? It really is all about relationships. Yes. And when people say that, it may sound like a cliche, but it happens to be true. Yeah. And, and you know, I really don't think it is a cliche because I do understand that, you know, that is a big part. And it's going to continue to be even more so uh, as we become more technologically driven, um, that the, the relationships in the human side of organizations is going to become quite uh it's always been important, but it's going to be even more important as you move forward in organizations. Linda, that's a very interesting point. What? The, how do you sort of see that? I'd love to see more of that. Well, that, <laughs> I'm supposed to be interviewing you here. <laughs> Turning the tables. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, um, so we have a chapter in our book, uh, Future Proof Workplace, Six Strategies um, for today that will drive Anyway, six strategies. And one of them is relationships. Uh, One of them is relationships. And what we're saying is that today, with all of the interconnectedness of um, technology, Uh that people are going to need more than ever to build those relationships with people they work with. And because we are going to be much more networked and much more community engaged, almost like the Goldsmith 100s. And if you don't know how to reach out to people, how to build allies in an organization, how to know how to counteract when you may not have an ally, yeah, um, this this is this is really going to derail your career if you're not able to come into an organization quickly and learn how to collaborate, learn how to build allies. Um, and make um, friends and have empathy for other people. So that's what it looks like to me. It's sort of that caring empathy piece. Yes. Um, And out of that, you get tremendous amount of 
goodwill. And then you can do things uh, remotely that you wouldn't have been able to do previously. Uh, yes, uh, very true. And I love your word allies. I th- certainly empathy, but also to build allies. And yeah. that's what it takes to um, really get where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell you, you know, actually that came, that came from Morag. That's in uh, uh, a word that she uses quite frequently, my co-author. So, so let's, let's move into another aspect here. Um, Alyssa, I, I, I think this notion of corporate politics, and we all know that the workplace is changing dramatically. Um, and you know, it is likely that corporate structures as we know them today and you work with startups, and I'm assuming yes. a lot of them are technology. Well, everything's going to be technology-based. Yeah, yeah. How is politics and corporate politics going to change as organizations begin to morph, get less, get more flat, use more gig workers, uh, use more contingent workforce, have people working on projects and then moving to other projects? Um you know, are they not going to stay in static uh, pyramids and static functional areas? How mm-hmm. is it going to change from your point of view? Mm. It's a great question. I would just add additionally how organizations, you know, all of the blockchain model get more decentralized. Yeah. Also, right. Yeah. And so there's a whole bunch of different people working together in an environment where it's more like um, contracts with each other, smart contracts rather than relationships. So it's a very interesting cluster like sort of constellation of activities, I think that politics is going to, well, in some ways, politics is going to stay the same. To the extent that we humans interact with each other at all, politics is simply about different people bumping up, bumping up against each other. And so what that means is that they have their different agendas, their different points of view, different values, different priority set, and they've all got to get work done together. And so one way or the other, whether um, technology is involved or whether, and, and also the, the sort of the gig workforce and, and more um, temporary workers like you're bringing up, you need to get better at being more quick to um, build a relationship and an ally and also to understand um, where they're coming from, what the other person's goals and objectives are so that you can see if you need to feed into them or if you recognize they are at odds with yours. So yeah. I think it's about having the skill to communicate with people and quickly build rapport and but also quickly get information you need about them so you can figure out where they fit into your own ecosystem. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we're coming up on a break right now, um, Alyssa, and I think this is a perfect time uh, to, to pause here and then talk about some of these other points that decision-making and how that is going to change. And this two-tier kind of practice that you have, I'd, I'd love to explore that. That's got to be really, really interesting. Um, so stay with us. We're talking to Alyssa Cohn, uh, world-class, renowned executive coach and strategist. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back to Future Proof Workplace. I'm uh, so 
glad to have you all with us. Um, I am talking today to Alyssa Cohn, and we're having a great conversation, really. We started out talking about women um, and executive presence and the differences here, and uh, we were discussing corporate politics and how that may change. You know, you mentioned blockchain, Alyssa, in the last um, section. Can you talk about that? I, I, I think it's a new, you know, it's relatively new term. How does that work and how is that going to affect work and relationships? Well, I'm very interested in the blockchain and in cryptocurrency, which yeah. are just two different things. Uh, I'm far from an expert, right? yeah. far from an expert. But um, what I've done, what I, I I've been learning a lot about both blockchain as a technology and understanding the, um, I guess, the important elements, which are that it's a distributed technology, it's decentralized, and that it allows anonymous transactions to take place. And they're also authenticated. So all of those things together provide very interesting use cases. One is, you know, one is certainly cryptocurrency, but there are other really interesting use cases that will I certainly change the way we do work and change the way we think about um, working together. And yeah. so the blockchain companies are also, I think, pioneering different ways of working together. So the different ways of paying vendors, of engaging with consultants, the blockchain culture by itself is, is um, the blockchain culture by itself is very much a sort of a volunteer environment. People, it's open source, I should say. People mm -hmm. jump in and contribute to the community and they're paid in a currency or the token of that project that they're working on. And then also governance happens, again, in this decentralized way um, in a very uh, open, open source kind of environment. So it's a lot of different ways of interacting that we're not used to that I certainly think are going to get carried through a more traditional workforce. Yeah, well, you know, it, this, it, 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 there's not much human interaction in the blockchain, if I understand it, right? Well, you know, yes and no. So, of course, the tech, one thing to say is that smart contracts enable you and I to have a transaction we don't have to know each other at all. We don't have to trust each other. We just have to set up a specific set of criteria, and the smart contract gets enabled and authenticated without us knowing each other, having interaction. That's the technology part. Mm. The governance part is just like everywhere. People, yeah. evangelists advocating for their ideas, you know, people wanting to – people spending time or not spending time. Right on their project or, or engaging together, people breaking off into their own alliances and doing different kinds of things. People putting, you know, voting in factions. That mm. all happens in the blockchain universe, just like in the real world. Mm. You know, that's interesting because I'm familiar with blockchain as it comes to cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all of that, but I was not aware that it's it's morphing into uh, a lot of other areas. Yeah, in fact, you know, the blockchain is so interesting. It's been popularized by Bitcoin and crypto, but I think it's going to turn out that like Bitcoin is going to be the least interesting application of the blockchain. The blockchain is going to enable so many different things um, that we don't quite see now. For example, um, logistics and supply systems are certainly going to be revital, re um, completely reinvented via yeah. the blockchain. Um, 
my understanding is that the diamonds industry because uh, has has really is going to be um, reinvented because of it, and here's why. Um, many people this is sort of social the social good question. Many yeah. people don't like blood diamonds, and they will actively not buy blood diamonds if they can figure that out. So, how do you certify and authenticate that your diamond through all the channels it passed through? All the different ways, it, different different uh, directions it took to get to you. How do you authenticate and validate that it is not a blood diamond? Yeah. The way to do that is using the blockchain. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's really amazing stuff. That's why I'm so interested because it's so rich. Yeah, it is rich, and and you know, I I do think it's going to sort of really rip apart sort of our thinking about supply chain and 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 all of that stuff. Yes going to be totally different. Yes, there's no question. And I, I do think it's going to also bleed into the world of work, especially in light of what you also talked about, the gig economy and temporary workforce. If you think about it, the blockchain can enable smart contracts and you don't have, you, it can be a seamless transactions where people jump in and take jobs and just do the job. They do the job to certain specifications. They get paid via the smart contract. Nobody even hired them. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Well, that puts a whole new. It's a time for time for a new book, Linda. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that changes this whole concept of succession planning and uh, <laughs> right <laughs> you know, top talent and all of that, which I've I've been saying anyway. I mean that that's coming. I don't know if it's going to be really in our lifetime. If if these big behemoth organizations are really going to be going away um, totally in the way we understand them. But we don't know. So how does decision-making, I mean, you talked about governance, but how, how does decision-making get made in these kinds of environments? Well, and again, you know, this is a, a bit a bit of a, a far, I look at this from afar. Yeah. Decision-making. I know, but I, I your insight. <laughs> what'd you say? I said, I love your insight. <laughs> decision-making is, is the same as any messy sort of direct democracy is that people advocate for their points of view. And if you're participating, you're heard. And if you're not participating, you're not heard. It's very much a direct sort of a direct democracy. Um, it's, and it's, um, I think it's messy, just like, you know, decision-making in the real world. But at the same time, I think what we have to understand, as always, is that the decision-maker is not always the one best qualified to make the decision. It's the person who has the power to make the decision. Yeah. That's important to recognize about decision-making. Also, back to influence and decision-making, we don't pick your idea if it's the, because it's the best idea. It's great if it's the best idea, but we pick your idea because you're the most influential because that's how people make decisions. We pretend it's facts and data. We pretend it's rational, but all the research now proves that people make a decision based on their emotions, and then they take facts and data to surround themselves by sort of rationalizing what they've already chose. Right, right. They collect the, uh, they collect the data to support it. Right. Yeah. So, so tell me, Alyssa, um, I'm saying that right. Is that correct? Yes. All good. <laughs> Thank no, you. I'm so worried. I'm at here. You got self-conscious. <laughs> I got self-conscious. I lost my confidence out there. <laughs> <laughs> we got to bolster you up. I know. Definitely. So, you know, you have two sides to your business and that do seem a bit opposite. I mean, you deal with these big Fortune 500 companies that we've, you know, we've really talked about that probably are going to be relatively, dis- many of them relatively disrupted by some of the things we were just talking about. 
and you're dealing with these small startups that don't have any legacy stuff going on and can take blockchain approaches to how they do things and you know can work more fluidly how, how do you how do you how do these two worlds sort of connect for you oh well you know first of all i love paradox and so I love the notion of working with large companies like one of my clients is Dell, one of my clients is Microsoft. I mean, talk about behemoths, right? These are huge companies, multi-offices, plenty of, for, you know, for me, very interesting corporate politics. Mm. And no, I just wrote an article for Worth about the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset and being able to have that in large companies, even though there's all this red tape. Mm. And then... You know, the other side, of course, is startups who are nimble in many ways, but also, you know, sort of slow down because of just lack of experience. So from my point of view, what I like to do is to bring the entrepreneurial mindset into large corporations and to bring structure and process and systems into small startups, high growth uh, companies. And that's the way I see it. Yeah, that's that's that's. Very cool. What do you see as the different issues in both sides of the equation here? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I'll talk about the similarities. So, and then I'll talk about the differences. The similarities come down to this: when you have, so I work with senior executives and CEOs, right? So one way or the other, these people lead a lot of people, mm-hmm. and when you're the leader. There's, a, there's this paradox there, too. On the one hand, you have to recognize that you're the leader. They're all looking at you. They're mm-hmm. all watching you. You're ex- the expression on your face. You don't even own the expression on your face. You're on stage all the time. Mm-hmm. And so you're the boss, and you have to really recognize that everything you say comes out as if it's from the boss. Your suggestions are orders. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, at the same time, you've got to repeat yourself over and over and over again because no one's listening to you, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you, you see that too, right? Oh, absolutely. Right. So what I tell you know, my leaders, both in startups and in large companies, just in terms of that communication, they're not listening to you when you tell them in a large group, so you got to tell them in a small group. If they're not hearing you in a small group, you've got to tell them one-on-one. If they're not hearing you one-on-one, you've got to go back to the all-hands and tell everybody so their peers will tell them. Because that's the point. You have to tell people multiple times over email, large groups, small groups, um, one-on-ones, taking a walk, formal settings, so that they can really kind of take the message in. Now, just to say maybe the difference in some ways is that startup leaders or CEOs and founders are often young. Yeah. Most often young. And so they haven't, you know, we talk about growing up in corporate America. They yeah. haven't grown up in corporate America. Yeah. If they've even had a management job before, that management job is, um, it, it's with a very tiny little small team. And so uh, they have to really adjust extremely quickly to the largest role there is to be the CEO. And that is very complicated and challenging for people. There's no question. And that's true for young founders. The second thing is that young founders are often thinking about the product or the, even the product or the service that they want to create. They're entrepreneurs. They're not leaders. And so they have to move from entrepreneur into CEO. And that's a different kind of scale and a different way to think about things. Yeah. And so they have to give up the passion. Well, they don't have to give up the passion that they have for what they're trying to do. But they're most likely, I mean, my experience is that they're most likely 
really engaged in the technical aspects of the job because that's what they discovered and that's what they love. And then move, making that, that, that leap then into the leadership is really, I think, pretty challenging for some people. There's no question. Either they're a technical person or they're a product person very right. often. And so right. from turning to that into a leader is a whole different skill set. Uh, one of the CEOs I worked with, they, the VC called him a tinkerer and that he thought he could tinker his way into the solution here. That's great, but a leader has to enable everybody else to tinker, not just tinker himself. Right, exactly. They have to help other people tinker. And yeah. I may have to move other people from tinkering to to uh, creating. <laughs> Absolutely. Deliver. And hiring the right people to create. Another topic with startups certainly is recognizing that they have to hire for scale, whereas yeah. large companies understand that already. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. That all said, I would say that also, you know, what, what senior leaders face in um, large companies is um, there's constant, it's just hard to get things done. Mm-hmm. At, at various times, there's a lot of red tape to decision making, and they've got to enable people that are often all around the world. And then also, leaders of, of divisions or CEOs of large companies, they really have no idea what's going on, you know, at the at the next level down at the sort of the employee level of the organization. Right. right. And so they have to be so crisp in communicating the direction; otherwise, nothing gets done. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. You made me think, um, I don't know if he's a, anybody cares about him anymore, but, uh, I used to work for Jack Welch and he was the, the former CEO of uh, GE. Now there's a new CEO who I also used to work for John Flannery, oh. but, um, uh, it's very interesting. Jack was a master at communication. He would every single year, pick a topic that was key to the organization, uh, maybe every single year, every three years, he never veered from that conversation. He had a one or two lines that he used all the time as a drumbeat for where everybody was headed. And it, it was fascinating to watch. I mean, it was really a great study in human behavior because you could be in Stamford, Connecticut or Fairfield, Connecticut, and you'd fly to Bangalore, India, and people would be saying exactly the same thing. Right, because that's what it takes, repetition, repetition, repetition. Um, That's fascinating, though, because, well, again, in startups, things can change pretty quickly. So sometimes I would ask the question, is one theme going to last the whole year? And legitimately, you know, we like to change things or we get thrown off course, I should say. But was it true that Jack Welch or or GE never had to adjust that theme? Uh, Well, I would say um, yes. They, they would adjust, but that's why, but, but always, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think about that. Yes, they would adjust and, uh, depending upon market conditions or, but they had a, this communication, uh, pattern that was so built into the DNA of the company. Yeah. That, um, you know, people really, if, if the, if the battleship was turning left, uh, everybody got it. Yeah. Because leaders really did see it as part of their job to communicate turn left now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, I, I think that's very interesting. And again, I think leaders need to be masters of the ability to bake it into the, into the culture, like you just said. Right, right. So, so Alyssa, I wanted to ask you, um, what, what, what do you see, um, what are some of the themes 
that you see coming out um, as you're coaching CEOs? The themes that come out? Yeah. Um, Certainly this notion of experiencing yourself as a leader. Um, Also, even though, um, so we talk about women and men, my experience is that men and women both experience a lot of self-doubt in the sanctity of the coaching room and that they have to look, um, they have to look confident to everybody. And of course, and that coaching shines a light on the areas where they have to make tough decisions. They just don't know what to do. Yeah. And so I think that is a, a definite theme of leaders that is underrated. Um, and I guess I would also say everyone's got their their edge, their learning edge. And we definitely have people who are too um, needing to be liked and kind of conflict averse. And then we have – sorry, go ahead. To, to what? I, I missed that. To need to be liked and oh, therefore yeah. conflict averse. Yeah. Right. right. As compared to the other side of that, which are sort of too emotional and ready to ready to be emotional. And they, by the way, many of them shy away from conflict, too. So they kind of would explode or get very tense mm-hmm. rather than be able to you know, have a productive conversation. So it's always about under, you know, sort of looking and, and seeing what is style is needed for this organization and doing that. Well, you know, one more theme I would say is that leaders regularly say to me, well, that's not my style. I'm not a micromanager or that's not my style. I don't give a lot of positive feedback. And my constant reframe is, you know, it's not about you. It's about what the team needs from you and what the company and what the situation requires from you and what the company, what the situation requires from you is more positive feedback. So you can keep not doing that, but I'm just telling you there are consequences to that. Right. 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 Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's so funny because they view the people that work for them as needing to adjust to them and their style instead of understanding that it's their job to adjust to the people that are in their sphere of influence. Yes. And that's a big shift. That's a big mindset shift. That is a big mindset shift. There's no question. Yeah. And you, do you see that? You, you see that as a big theme? Oh yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, it's all this sort of, um, it, it's just this interesting dynamic. You know, leadership is an unnatural act. Yeah. And, and there's no question that there is some of us who are naturally oriented to being successful with people, and that helps. Yeah. Or there are some of us who have learned it over the years, and that helps too. But ultimately, you know, a leader is kind of, if you think, parachuted into this company, and it's either a large company or a small company, with a lot of things going on in his or her head, like a lot of noise. And their job is to react quickly, confidently, decisively to whatever gets thrown at them. And that's hard, right? So there's that. Plus, you're like in a learning moment of like, I'm trying to adjust my style or I'm under the mistaken impression everyone's supposed to adjust their style to me or I think they should do it because I'm the boss or I would never want to tell adults what to do. All of those things are part of our makeup. And yet different moments require different activities from you. And so it's very, I think leadership is very complicated. Oh, I, I totally agree. It, it's very complicated. It takes a lot of personal discipline. It takes a lot of personal introspection. Right. You know, I always say to leaders that the, the vehicle that you have to be a leader is yourself. And, right. you know, you never stop learning about yourself and how you're impacting others. 
and you know what you need to do to change. So I think I think it's a fascinating discussion, and it's not easy. That's why you and I make so much money doing coaching. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's why we're are gainfully employed, a target rich are gainfully employed. Absolutely. So I know we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, some startups and CEO startups, but. You know, you, you say that there's, uh, th- th- what are some things that have surprised you or would surprise people about startup CEOs? Would surprise people about startup CEOs? Um, I mean, it's so funny. I'm so steeped in the world of startups right now that I'm like, oh, no, they, you know, they wouldn't surprise anybody. They're <laughs> pretty much the way they are. But I would say this one thing. The startups, the CEOs that I work with, I think that there's a sort of this meme or this this sort of strange interpretation now that startup CEOs start a company and then a little bit of fairy dust happens and then they sell their company for a billion dollars. Yeah. And the big surprise is no, that doesn't happen very often. And it only happens when you read about it in the newspaper. Right. And the startup CEOs I work with are not in it for that. They are not in it for that. They are in it for um, this passion that comes with the thing that they are um, that they're yeah. building. I have this two co-founders I work with at this one company, and um, one of them lives abroad, and one of them lives here in the U.S. And so, but they they work together. They knew each other, and they work together side by side for two years, and then one of them moved here to New York to start the New York office, and. Um, I said to them when I entered the scene, you know, I just want to make sure the two of you are on the same page about some key issues like that you agree and that you've discussed these things. So I said, for example, what if you get an offer to sell the company? And I, I looked at the CEO and the CEO looked at his co-founder and said, what about selling the company? And the co-founder said, no, never. <laughs> like that. And, he, and the CEO looked at me and said, that's your answer. Like they are totally aligned on we are building a company for the next generation, right? Like we are in this to build a company. We're not here to exit. Yeah. Well, you know, I, frankly, I, I love that. Yeah. It's I absolutely love that. And, and, you know, you can always tell when you're working with the startup board, um, who is just in it for the money and who right. is really there because they're passionate about what they're trying to develop for mankind. Right. Absolutely. And, and I, and, you know, I love that mentality. And unfortunately, as the companies get bigger and bigger and bigger and they start getting more successful, that often they lose sight of that, which is kind of sad. Do you, do you see that or no? Um, you know, yes and no. I think that there's, again, a lot of complexity. I think what I see when an organization gets bigger and becomes more um, of a real potential, what happens is that CEOs don't recognize they now need to shift their style quite quite significantly. And what boards fail to tell them is they need to shift their style quite significantly because maybe they're distracted by the, fin- the financials and wanting to achieve the promise of this company. But what they don't, uh, what they don't focus um, – what they don't focus on is making sure that the founders and the CEO is equipped for that. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, where do you see the future of startups and organizations going? We spent a lot of time talking about blockchain, and uh, you know, and I was listening to that. I wrote a note to myself: this is going to require a great deal more trust um, than it is my feeling that we've had 
in um, workplaces before. So, so where do you see the future of startups and organizations going? Well, I mean, I think you said it before. I think um, certainly organizations are becoming more flat. Startups certainly are experimenting more than ever before on the right structures that work for them. Um, and I think that everybody needs to learn to work in a more remote workplace. And then you well know that everybody's communicating now on Slack and on chat so or text. And so how do we find – it's also how do we just get great at the kind of communication which is all over the place? Uh, you know, I used to say you need to take some time and do that conversation in person. Yeah. Or at least on the phone, because what I also say is we live in a remote environment. You need to use those tools. Right. But now I recognize that, you know, certainly the digital natives and, um, and, and just younger people grew up with text in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So there's issue. You know, I don't want to give everybody this now. You sort of permission to do every, just everything by text. But I recognize there's more room for learning how to communicate in a world-class way, in an excellent way, via text, via Skype. Uh, sorry, Skype, but I was going to say Slack also. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, yeah, I think that that's really true. And, and, and I think people are going to have to learn how to use those tools um, more effectively and build relationships and trust through those tools. Do you think people yes. that, that um, you know, text each other all the time, how is that helping a relationship or is there a piece in there, Alyssa, that, that requires some face-to-face via, via Skype or, you know, another form? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's no question. So again, I work with this company and one, half of the teams abroad and half the teams in the U S they spend a lot of time and energy getting together. Um, and they use a lot they do a lot of video and they send time to getting together. There's another company I work with, which is 100% remote, 100% remote. Yeah. And so everyone works from their home, one way or the other. And they use they use almost exclusively video calls. And they get together now and again in clusters. And they finally had um, a full company meetup just recently. Yeah. So they recognize that need for that in-person experience. Yeah. I think, you know, when we were... It feels like eons ago, and it probably was, when companies were really going global and, you know, people were just not going, they were going to have to get used to working in global teams. And it was a lot of studies that were done on that. And the most effective teams were the ones that did have some face-to-face time with each other. Yes, that was a long time ago that we were like that. And I remember that research myself. Yeah. And I think that that is holding true and is going to hold true no matter what happens, because we are at the end of the day, people. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So, so tell me, where's the future? What does the future of uh, coaching look like? And we're coming up to the end of the show. So give me the future of coaching from your point of view, and then three messages you want to leave our audience today. Good. The future of coaching is technology. Mm. The future of coaching is bots, is short bursts of um, short bursts of um, you know kind of connection, but also the technology enabled. The future of coaching is enabling people with, um, for example, you know Marshall Goldsmith triggers like in daily questions, using it using technology to help people stay on track. Yeah. Um, I also think the future of coaching is 
recognizing, helping people understand that we are living in a, I mean, this is such a cliche, but it's so true, an exponential state of change. Yeah. And we as coaches need to keep up with that and learn tools to help everyone um, sort of collect and then synthesize data seamlessly and yeah. work seamlessly with ever-changing situations. Yeah, I think that's really true. And that, and that you know, we used to talk about white water rafting relative to change, and now it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tsunami. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it really a, is. And, and, it, and it's just going to be here. So give me the three things you, three messages you want to leave our audience, and then how do they get a hold of you? Okay, well, I think the three messages uh, are, number one, growth mindset and lifelong learning. Mm. Please take responsibility for your own learning and think about the things that you want to accomplish and take steps towards getting there from a career perspective, also from a personal perspective. To recognize that the voices in your head are not visible and voluble to us and yeah. that you want to, as much as possible, align your intentions with your impact. We oh, all have blind spots on that. Yeah, we all have blind spots on that. And we need to align our intention with our impact. Yeah. And, um, you know, the last thing to say is to embrace the unknown and to embrace change and walk through world, the world with confidence, even in the midst of this kind of change. Yeah. Well, I don't think you're going to have a choice if you want to survive. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, exactly. You know, and, 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 but you've got to, uh, in order to thrive, you absolutely have to do that. People that are, want to go back to the way things were, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen, 100%. And we, you know, and we, we say in our book, you know, resistance is futile. <laughs> so you must get it. It's so true. Yeah. So how do people get get a hold of you, Alyssa? Well, they can say how to be on tw Twitter at Alyssa Cohn, A-L-I-S-A-C-O-H-N, or find me on my website, AlyssaCohn.com. I'm going to spell it one more time, Linda. Is that yeah, okay? Please okay. do that. A-L-I-S-A-C-O-H-N.com. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, this has just been a great conversation. I, I would love to explore it even further, and I cannot wait to see you at the end of the year. For sure, uh, if not before. Yeah, if, if not before. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It was really enlightening, and I would just encourage anybody who's uh, listening. Um, we have we have over, like, 50,000 listeners. Wow. Uh, which is Hi, really everybody. Great. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if everybody's on today, but, you know, I was getting some of the stats, and... Um, uh, so anybody who really is looking for a brilliant coach and somebody to help them, uh, from a, a startup perspective or to meld or shape a CEO, call Alyssa. She is the best in the business. <laughs> thanks, Linda. And thanks for the great chat. And thanks for having me today. Yeah, I loved it. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks everybody for listening. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.